So I think I've got one of my options for for my uh, my working title here is khakis don't lie. So that's a, that's a good line for me to no come on pull don't. out of here. <laughs> <laughs> they don't though; they're unforgiving, aren't they? Yes. Necklines and waistlines. Hello and welcome to the Wardroom, a podcast dedicated to the leadership development of the U.S. Navy's engineering duty officers. I'm your host, Lieutenant Commander Matthew Horton. Today, we are holding a panel on work-life balance. Joining us are Captain Sid Hodgson, Commander Ty Biggs, and Lieutenant Commander Jessica Jett. Captain Hodgson is the husband of Bridget and father of Sid, Sophia, Christian, and Bridgie, and he is currently serving as the Major Program Manager for PEO IWS-11 Terminal Defense Systems. Commander Biggs is a PMR at Soup Ship for Nucon Aircraft Carriers. He has 22 years in the Navy, and he's married with three kids, and he likes to play the guitar and piano. Lieutenant Commander Jett grew up in a military family and has seen the military life from both the dependent and sponsor side of active duty. She has been married to Stephen for five years, and they have a two-year-old with another on the way. And she is currently serving as the Air Dominance Department Officer at the Naval Surface Warfare Center, Port Wanini. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee and to join us in the wardroom. Captain, Ty, Jessica, welcome to the wardroom. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. So a little bit of editorializing from me here. Uh, you know, I, I really have been looking forward to this discussion. I think this is one of the most important factors that we as an EDO community are having to wade our way through as we look to continue to retain talent as uh, millennials age up into some of the senior ranks. So getting this balance and getting this discussion right is crucial. Uh, so I'm glad we can be part of that discussion. So let's just, I want to get on into it. Uh, and then, so the first question, and Captain, I'm going to start off with you. So how do you define work-life balance and what does success look like to you? And so a couple of follow-ons to that. How would you rate your level of achieving that success? And then how would your family rate your level of achieving that success? Your first questions are very good ones. And, and I apologize up front for the long answer, but I think some of what I've encountered on this topic could help others uh, who may be struggling with the same thing that, that I was. We all know that life balance is critically important. For me, if I didn't get a handle on it, I wasn't going to be able to continue serving. I have four children, 10 and younger, who deserve a lot of my time and energy. And I had to find a way to balance the demands of program management life in DC and mentor group lead with my obligations as a father, husband, friend, son, and coach. And I knew I had to make it a habit. So you asked for a definition of life balance. So for me, it is the proper alignment of your time and energy to your priorities. Notice I didn't say that balance equals happiness or balance equals 12 hours in the office, 12 hours out of the office, or that balance equals it not being hectic. So for me, it's not an equation. It's more a state. And so here's how I got after it. I knew it wasn't going to happen naturally, and I had to do something deliberately. So Matthew, have you ever heard the analogy about the glass jar and the rocks at different sizes and gravel and sand? I have. So that's exactly the visual model I use. And for those who aren't familiar, the glass jar is your time and energy and the rocks are your priorities. The gravel and the sand are the lesser priorities. The golden rule of managing all this is you put your big rocks in first followed by the medium, and then the gravel, then the sand. And so the first thing I did is I wrote down my priorities as a husband, father, son, friend, brother, coach, leader, program manager, and mentor group lead. I wrote all those down. Then I looked at the calendar. I noticed there were a lot of obligations for the PM that were three to four hour meetings. 
there was a lot of travel, which has a lot of overhead associated with it. And so to me, this was the lower priorities and the sand and the gravel. So I just got rid of all of that and I made room. I delegated the very long meetings and I capped my travel at 25%. I said, I'll go to the things they need me, not the meetings where they want me. And I can delegate those. So that's how I created room. Then I started putting those big rocks back into it. The big rocks were the meetings I must attend, time for me to do only the things that I can do, to lead, to make phone calls, to have vision for the organization, to prepare for briefings that I was giving. Then I put in the kids' activities, their sports and their school functions, my coaching obligations, my workout, my wife's workout, sleep, and mentoring calls. So I made sure I was allocating the appropriate time and energy to each one of those because the kids can't always get the tired version of you. And so once I did that, then I started putting in those other uh, requests for my time. And what you'll find is eventually you hit a point where there's no more time and that's the decision point. And you have to decide what are you going to delegate? And so luckily I have an awesome team and I could delegate a lot of that stuff and then catch up in a five-minute sync session on what happened in that hour meeting. And that's how I bought back time, and I was able to get those big rocks in there. And so I execute that process since I started. Now, I've tried and failed a lot of ways of doing this. This one worked for me. And so I rinse and repeat that every Thursday and Friday with the team as we're budgeting our time. As for your success question, it's a journey. I never feel like I've mastered it, but I never stop trying. I recognize more when I'm out of balance than when I'm in balance. And uh, the key is for me is not to, to beat myself up about it, but just continue to uh, co- recommit yourself to doing better each day and each week. And the last part of your question was to rate ourselves. And uh, so for my eight years in DC, I would give myself a B. I asked my family last night. My wife also gave me a B and my kids surprisingly Uh, gave me a B as well. So I know that was a long answer, but hopefully some of that helps folks if they're struggling with the same thing. And I'll I'll turn it over to Ty and Jess for their perspective. So yes, I I absolutely agree uh, with Captain Hodgson here about work-life balance is a moving target. And to me, it comes down to the attention that I afford to all of these different big rocks that that are in my life, as well as the smaller rocks, the gravel and the sand. But for me, I continually assess and I, and I try to give attention to exercise, my personal regimen, my piano, my guitar. Got to give uh, attention to work, of course. And then you have to give attention to your family, et cetera. But I try to keep all of those things, continue to think about those. And as long as I'm making a conscious effort to say, did I do this enough? Did I do enough, you know, spend enough time with my family? Did I, did I get all of my goals accomplished at work that I had set out to do? As long as I continue to reevaluate that, for me, it seems to me that, that that's what has been working. And I, I, <laughs> I would not say that I'm the best at it, but I do realize when I'm out of whack as well. And I think that's very important too. I realize when I'm failing, right? I, you know, I'll hear the, the wife or the kids tell me that they need me to spend more time doing something, or I will see a demand signal from work where I think I'm missing the mark a little bit. So I continue to reevaluate, reassess, and, and place my attention and my priority where it needs to be. That's what success looks like for me. But 
if I were to ask my family uh, how would they uh, rate my success, I think I would get the up thumb, the thumbs up rather. And uh, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. Uh, I do make my commitments to them. I, I do uh, find time and make time to keep my commitments to them. And my definition of success is if they think that I'm successful in this. So if they think I'm doing the right thing, the boss at work uh, has no complaints and I'm and I'm meeting all the marks there. I think I'm successful there. And as far as my physical fitness and my mental fitness, I think as long as you know, I look in the mirror and I'm happy with what I see, perhaps, and uh, and I enjoy the the time that I find keeping to myself, piano, guitar, etc. Uh, I think I'm successful. Yeah, I think a lot of the same uh, statements kind of pop into my head of priorities and goals for you know, what, what determines work-life balance? It's what's important to you. And then success, like both of you said, I think it's easier to figure out when you're out of sorts rather than when you're meeting the mark. When I'm meeting the mark, you know, that doesn't pop up a red flag that I'm failing or I feel like I'm failing, but, or, you know, nothing pops up that I'm doing well, but something definitely pops up when I'm not doing well. So I think it's easier to, for me to figure out when I'm not making the mark rather than when I'm uh, meeting my goals. But I mean, on top of that, this is, we're, we're really blessed. We're a really lucky group that we're able to even talk about this, uh, the idea of having work-life balance and being able to prioritize both that your family goals, your personal goals, and your professional goals. So like like everybody else, I did ask my family how they would rate me. Uh, I rated myself a 7.5 on a scale of one to 10 and thinking that my family would rate me lower but I, I ended up getting a, uh, my husband's at 100%. So I don't know if he's just a really easy grader. Uh, I don't think he's a trophies for all kind of guy. So I think uh, that was his honest assessment. And I'm sure if my daughter could speak English properly, yet, she would probably <laughs> give me a little bit of a lower rating because kids kind of always want you to be around all the time. So that that's where I ended up with. But uh, th- I'm interested in the rest of this conversation because balance is a misleading term. It implies there's always a give and take. And to some extent with your calendar, there definitely is. But I think there's a lot of ways we can be creative to try to meet both personal and professional goals uh, and find satisfaction in both areas of life. So the most interesting takeaway for me in all of that is I asked three engineers how to rate themselves and I got three different scales. But okay, so now we've talked about what achieving success looks like. Why do you think it's so important that we get this right, both in terms of personal fulfillment and also in talent retention? So, Ty, I'll start with you. Hey, thank you for the question. So, you know, when I look at the ED community and, and everyone here on this on this podcast, we are all high achievers. We are not used to failing at things. We are used to setting goals, uh, reaching our goals. And I think work-life balance being not out of sorts is one of those goals that we strive to to keep in place for personal fulfillment i feel like i feel like i am underachieving and failing if i don't keep my balance and jessica i wanted to to add on to a definition of balance that i think you were starting to talk about but balance doesn't mean that we spend equal time with everything right so balance to me just means that things get the attention they deserve Maybe it's 30 minutes in the gym and two hours with the family and everything's not equal, though. And we all know that work takes up more of that time. But as far as personal fulfillment, you know, I just like to I like to meet my responsibilities. And I think that it just comes down to being a high achiever, no different than anyone else in the in the ED community. 
As for talent retention, I think it's important for the talent. We're all all talented, especially those junior officers, though, to see when they look at senior officers, what they see is hopefully themselves in a few years, right? And they need to see good examples of how people have a naval career, have personal lives, and and keep that balance. So I think it's extremely important for talent retention. We've got a lot of qualified naval officers that have job opportunities elsewhere should they decide to leave. Many of them are staying in the Navy only with a sense of loyalty, in fact, where they could you know, find employment elsewhere and achieve that work-life balance. So I think for talent retention, they've got to see their leaders doing it right. I was on a, a call recently with a program manager that decided, you know, he, I, I think he's doing a phenomenal job of balancing his work and his life. And as busy as his program is, he told his staff that in the middle of his day, he was going to take an hour to work out. And it set a great example for me because I'm down here at Soup Ship Newport News, the Pima running around, and uh, I can't seem to find time to, to exercise in the middle of the day. But if he can, certainly I can. <laughs> right. So it gives me new goals. So uh, anyway, uh, the takeaway there with the talent retention is is that the uh, the younger officers, the junior officers need to see their their leaders doing it right and uh, know how good things can be. You said it really well, Ty, is that it's a matter of talent retention and we're competing with the rest of the Navy, we're competing with the rest of the DOD, and we're competing with the, you know, the rest of America with the commercial workforce. And additionally, on top of on top of that, we're also competing with the economy as it goes up and down. If we're honest with ourselves, the Navy is sometimes more appealing than the jobs out there from a financial perspective, and sometimes it's not. So we're balancing a lot of different priorities and fighting a lot of different tigers. So we need to figure out, like you said, how to get the best talent. And this is a topic that matters to our current workforce and is definitely becoming a higher priority for the workforce that's coming in and will come in over the next 10 or 20 years. So it's something we need to put at the forefront of our minds. And I think COVID really has opened people's eyes to the importance of family and priorities and balance and, you know, those deeper questions of what really matters at the end of the day and what really matters at the end of your life. So in order to get the best people, we need to know this is what they're thinking about. This is what people in our workforce, in our country are considering when they decide if they want to take a job or a career path. Yes. Thanks, Ty and Jess. Uh, I'll just underscore a couple points and sprinkle in um some other points. I've never met an engineering duty officer in my decade of doing this that I had to worry about whether they would work hard or long enough to accomplish the mission. I haven't met them. I have worried about a few that are running hot for too long. And so to Ty's point, to Jess's point, it's a matter of sustained out of balance equals burnout and burnout equals talent voting with their feet. And I think they they choose to do something else. So I think I sat as a lieutenant commander, commander coming into the community, and I would hear leaders, civilian and military, but say that if you're in a program office and, and you're a PM, you're probably not going to achieve balance. And I remember jotting down a note, like prove that wrong. And that's when I started on the process that I explained in answering the first question. Prove that wrong. And I think it is achievable. And I think 
like Ty was saying, for captains and commanders to show JOs that it can be done is very important for us retaining that talent long term and you know grooming our successors. So let me ask you this. What is it about our society and, and the Navy particularly, I think, that makes this topic constantly relevant? Why are we always having to struggle with work-life balance, right? This comes up all the time. I think uh, when I when I joined the Navy, I was a surface warfare officer. You know, working harder, working longer hours than the than the officers next to you was almost something to have pride about. But I think that the attitude has shifted in society. I often think about Facebook and, and Google and places like that where folks could work and achieve that work-life balance a little bit probably a little bit differently than they would in the Navy, right? It seems like it's more offered, if you will. But I think that's what I've I've seen change. So, you know, we're out there competing, we being the Navy, competing for that talent with uh, private industry. I don't I don't think we stand a chance unless we, we do something to fix that culture. And I do think that the Navy has taken great strides toward fixing that culture. Just the fact that we're having a podcast about this says a tremendous amount. But I do recall... Uh, how I joined the Navy and things were, uh, <laughs> they seemed a little bit more, I'd say more bleak perhaps for the junior officers. And you're looking at your uh, your senior commanders and captains that are working those harder, longer hours and, and uh, neglecting their family. So I think we've, uh, I think this is great that we're having podcasts like this to address situations and uh, try to make it better for, for Navy families and the Naval officers that are here. Ty, really, really solid answer. Um, I can only give you the way I see it through my personal experience, it was existential to me. I was not going to be able to continue serving in the Navy with four kids under 10 if I didn't figure it out. And so I had to. And I think your question was, why is this so relevant in society and and the Navy in particular? And I think it's because time is that fixed resource that applies to all of us. And so it applies to everyone in society and demands exceed the time available. So we all have to do something to to get through it. So I think it's so relevant because it applies to everybody. Can you give some examples of those whom you've seen who really do have this you know work life balance thing figured out and what they're doing that seems to work? I would say my wife, and I say that because she's juggling more than than I am. My wife is a is a grade school Spanish teacher. She runs her own consulting company. She's a mother to uh, our four kids, and she has to tolerate me. And so what she's able to do on a daily basis, it really blows my mind. And so I've taken some lessons from her, and really, she bounds her time. That gets 30 minutes of her time, and that's what it gets. And what I've learned from her is not everything gets A-level performance. You have to differentiate the work. What I mean by that, and you hear Mr. Gertz say this before, but how I've applied that in my own life and watching my wife is you have to decide what those things are that are going to get A-level work and what's going to get B and what's going to get C. And that's okay. But as high performers, like Ty mentioned before, we expect everything to be A-level. If I'm building a briefing that my boss is giving her boss, that gets A-level performance. But my lawn does not get an A. It gets C plus. And I trade that Delta away that my neighbor spends seven hours on a Saturday on their lawn. And I, I give that back to the kids. 
So that differentiating the work, I think, is critical. And bounding the time you allocate to certain tasks in your life really helps buy back some of that time that you can spend on the more important thing. Yeah, I guess first, sir, I love that you said your wife. I hope you told her that, that she's your example. But I mean, I can think of a lot of people specifically that have good work-life balance. And I think one of the things that they have in common is their ability to say no and realizing they're not the only one that can do something. And I'll, I'll give a specific example. Recently, I had a boss who was giving a huge brief. Um, it was a big deal. Everybody was coming and the brief got moved by a month and it was right on top of his vacation. And instead of moving his vacation trip to Disney World, he told his deputy that, you know, they were going to cover it. And that was fine. He told the boss, you know, the deputy was going to cover it. And that was fine because he knows that he's not the only one that can do something. And on top of that, you know, he was training his team to make sure that they can do the same work that they can take over. He's not a, a one man band. So I think that's something, especially as a type personalities that we always want to do it ourselves and get it done. And really as naval officers, we're leaders and we're supposed to be training the folks under us to be able to take our job one day because they will. So that's that's something I've seen in common with great examples of people who have work-life balance. And then the other one is just people that have realistic expectations. It's really easy to put all these you know requirements on ourselves of what you know that A plus work looks like. And not everything requires A plus work. And our definition of A plus work isn't necessarily what's required. So realistic expectations, being able to say no, and then also trusting and training those that you work with. Hey, Jessica, I, I, um, I'll jump in here. I appreciate those comments a lot. I think saying no, and I don't want anyone to take this the wrong way, but I think saying no is a, is a big deal. And, and that's a big help a lot of times to cordoning off your calendar and your time. Uh, but I, I like saying no. Sometimes you just have to say no. And the people that I've seen be successful have been willing to not commit to meetings and, and not make changes to their personal schedules to support work, for instance. That doesn't mean that that they're not supporting the work itself, but this is the second point you made, Jessica. It means that they're using their deputies and they're using their assistants and they're, they've trusted the people that they've trained to be responsible and cover those meetings for them. So I think saying no is a big deal. Obviously, another trait that I've seen for folks with good work-life balance. I will use my wife as well. I think that's a, a very safe answer. She's a, She works and uh, three children. Uh, they're all sports age, so you know, two teenagers and a nine-year-old. So maintaining a calendar, very strict adherence to calendar, and I'll say multiple calendars is what she does to include sending me meeting invites on personal calendars, et cetera. But I, I think that's another quality. I'm a list maker. I like, I start off my days, I make a list and I if I write it down, I tend to get to it, but my list doesn't tend to use time blocks on it. It's just a, <laughs> a random list of, of tasks that I plan to do for that day. But I think those that uh, put those tasks and associate times with them and, and go back to a calendar and, and are very firm in uh, the activities that they will accept and won't accept on their calendar, I think those are the most successful people with achieving that work-life balance. And, you know, How have you seen attitudes about work-life balance shift over your time in the Navy and even, you know, time before, just over time? 
when I joined the Navy, it seemed to me that everyone, you know, work hard, stay longer, get there earlier and leave after the troops was what you had to do. And uh, that was what the boss expected me to do. Of course, my boss didn't leave till the captain left. The captain worked hard. I didn't leave until my boss left. So, <laughs> the you know, the poor divos there trying to beat everyone and be the last one off the ship. And you're, you're burning the candle at both ends. I think I have seen it shift where we are more understanding, more accepting that people do have other lives. And that when those other lives, those other parts of their lives are out of balance, out of whack, their work performance is impacted and it's impacted in a negative way. So we really are helping the Navy become better and helping our uh, Naval officers be more efficient at performing whatever tasks when we are able to keep that work-life balance in place. Uh, So I think this shift to a uh, what a lot of the old timers would say is a kinder, gentler Navy. I think that shift is a good shift, and I think is a shift that's going to produce a more effective and efficient Navy. You know, when I was on a ship, I had a very different perspective of work-life balance, but I also had very different demands on my life. And so the you know becoming an EDO and then marrying my husband and having my first kid and soon my second kid has it changed my perspective? And I think I've seen a a parallel path in how the Navy has changed its perspective on work-life balance of realizing that this is important. And I think it kind of goes back to what we said earlier of it becoming more important everywhere in society. But also when I look specifically, there are more millennials coming up into the ranks, you know, more marriages are juggling two careers and people are just realizing that at the end of the day, your job is not going to be the only thing that matters. So that's kind of what I've seen. And it's almost hard for me to separate the two of what changes are happening in society and the Navy and the attitude shifting over time, just uh, compared to my own shifts in how I view those things. And even the things that uh, I encountered as a nursing mother were totally eye-opening to the struggles that new moms go through of trying to take care of a baby that even though, you know, I'm, I was, I'm a woman and I, I have friends that have kids and they've talked to me about their struggles and their challenges. It's totally different when you go through it. So it, it, that's a really interesting question. Um, Cause like I said, it's hard for me to parse out the two. So I've been in this Navy for 24 years and to tying Jess's point, I've seen it change but I've also seen my own situation change as well. So that's the kind of the point Jessica was making is that balance to her as an ensign on a ship is different than balance to her now as, as a mother, wife, and naval officer. But a quick story, and it's just last week, blocked out time on my calendar for my five-year-old's kindergarten graduation because he came up to me the night before and he said, dad, are you going to go to my graduation? I said, yeah, I'm going. And so I'm not kidding you. A meeting pops in from my boss at that same time. And 24 years of my experience and the culture I was in said, I'm going to step out of that graduation. I'm going to go to that meeting with my boss and support her. And then I'm going to step back in. And then I said, well, wait a minute. I'm really not living life balance if I do that. I looked him in the eye. What if he's going up to get his certificate when I step out? And he looks out for his dad in the audience and there's an empty chair next to my wife, Bridget. How's he going to feel? I called my boss. I said, ma'am, you scheduled this meeting. I really want to support you here. It's during my son's graduation. She said, stop. 
I'll catch up with you later on that. You go to your son's kindergarten graduation. So the leaders we're working for, and hopefully we as the leaders and those working with us are starting to see that culture change. And these leaders are living it in their own lives and the culture and environment they're creating in the organizations they're leading. And it's up to us to carry that all the way down the organization and set that example. But I was blown away. She stopped me mid-sentence and told me, go. And it was awesome. Let me ask this then too. And you mentioned, you know, some of these major life events. Sometimes we're not always going to hit all those wickets, right? So, you know, what are some reasons why we personally struggle with maintaining that work-life balance? And then in that struggle, do you also ever struggle with guilt? And how do you deal with it? You know, for, for neglecting family or neglecting mission, you know, something sometimes things have to give. Yeah, I, I think for me, it comes down to unrealistic expectations. That's why I personally struggle with maintaining work-life balance. Like I said earlier, it sound, you know, my husband gave me a pretty high rating. Um, and I don't think that's because I'm an all-star at work or at home. I think it's because I put unrealistic expectations on myself and he has a more realistic view of me. And like we said earlier, we're, we're balancing two things that we love. I love being a wife and a mother, and I want to be good at that. But I also want to be a good naval officer and take care of the mission and take care of our sailors. So that, that adds to the struggle of why I personally struggle with maintaining balance is because I want to be the best at, at everything. I want to be good at everything. I want to support the, the, the people and the goals that I care about in my life. But when I set unrealistic expectations... That just sets me up for failure. And I know that for mothers in particular, you, you mentioned guilt. You know, that's definitely a thing that's all over the internet and at the park or wherever moms get together is mommy guilt. Um, this feeling like you're not meeting the mark, like the decisions you're making are impacting your kids negatively for the rest of your life. All these terrible things, you know, wherever your mind rambles off to. But it again, for me, goes back to unrealistic expectation. Like I said, nursing was really hard for me. And so I had to reset expectations of what it means to be a good mother and to take care of my baby doesn't necessarily mean I have to be fully nursing for a year. So for me, the way I deal with it, again, setting realistic expectations and then communication, talking to my husband who reminds me that I'm a good mom and a good wife and asking him what he expects or what he needs at home and what he thinks the kids need. Honest communication with your boss or a near peer, someone who can give you feedback and tell you, you know, no, Captain, you need to go to that, that graduation or, or whatever it is. Sometimes we need honest feedback or I think always we need honest feedback in our lives. Somebody who will shoot you straight. So communicating with the, you know, your, we'll call them stakeholders in all aspects of your life, and then having realistic expectations and then a good sounding board. Yeah, I love these podcasts because I, I'm jotting down notes as Jess and Ty are talking because I learn by listening to people that are doing it well. So this is really awesome. I got to tell you, I don't feel too much guilt, and but I do know when I'm getting out of balance. And I've because I feel short with people or my wife lets me know or my friends let me know I haven't talked to them in two to three weeks. My khakis might be getting a little tighter because khakis don't lie. So there are tells. There are tells that tell you you're getting out of balance, but I don't feel guilt. And I find when I start getting out of balance, it's because I'm not differentiating the work 
My perfectionist tendency is getting in the way. So I have to check that. And I'm not delegating enough. So I quickly just look at the calendar. I'm like, oh, I, I attended three three-hour meetings that gobbled up a large chunk of my calendar. So I didn't delegate enough. And another trick I learned from someone is that I give myself an hour every evening. And some people must say, that's crazy. After the kids go to bed, that's when you, you, you go to work. That's an hour where I can do the work that only I can do. I get that during the day. I block off times in the day to do that. But if you subscribe to servant leadership, when you're at work, I feel as a program manager, I am serving the team, knocking down barriers, making phone calls to connect people, to get stuff accomplished, external communications, making sure the sponsor and the external stakeholders are informed. There's work only you can do. That's what gets my time during the day. Some of that spills over. We all know this. If I got to be out the door at 4.30 out of my office because those seven-year-olds are waiting for their baseball coach, I didn't get it all done. So I give myself an hour in the evening. And I'll tell you why I did the hour in the evening. As a parent, your kids hit a certain age and they start keeping a ledger in their head. They know how much time you're spending with them and how much time you're spending at work and on the weekends maybe catching up. And so my 10-year-old, he was seven at the time, said, Daddy, weekends are my time. Why are you working? So he started holding me accountable. And so I looked at him in the eye when he said that to me. I said, son, if you're awake, I will not be checking the iPhone. I will not be on my computer. That is your time. That is family time. When they go to bed in the evenings, I give myself an hour. So I get enough sleep to get that workout in the morning. And that's just what works for me. But I, I definitely can tell when I'm getting out of balance. And those are the the reasons why not differentiating, not delegating enough. What can we as leaders and we as supervisors, what, what can we do for those folks that work for us and our shared goal of trying to achieve good work-life balance? We talk about it. That's what we do in 11.0. It's a part of every meeting, either beginning or the end. And we talk about life balance. And I'll just throw out there, someone give me a good life balance example from this weekend. And as we've been doing this more and more, folks are volunteering their hacks or their pro tips on what they're doing. I share some of mine. And what we got to is you get some very good feedback that way. And a couple rules we set up. I do that hour in the evenings. So if I'm sending emails because that's when it works because I committed to my seven-year-old not to check when I got home, I do not expect a reply. They will get a text or their phone will ring if we have the rare acquisition emergency. The other thing we learned through this process as we went into telework, we found if we didn't keep the routine meetings routine, that had a ripple effect throughout the team because everyone was working out in their own personal life, their other obligations in a max telework environment. Someone senior to me has to schedule on top of one of our routine meetings for it to move. We try to keep that sacrosanct on the calendar to avoid that churn for the team members. Now, as we start coming back, we're doing hybrid meetings. There is zero obligation unless we say this is an in-person meeting, and that's rare. That's when it's a very potentially contentious topic or, or something that requires face-to-face. -face. Those are rare. So as folks are starting to work on their coming out of COVID routines in their life balance, we're accommodating that through hybrid. So we had a meeting the other day, seven of us were in the office, 
I had the rest of the team up on the big screen and we were on teams and it was almost like everyone was in the room. They weren't disenfranchised because they were remote and uh, we had a hybrid meeting. So those are some of the things we've been doing here in 11 up. I agree with everything Captain Hodgson said. I, I certainly like the setting expectations and the communications. I think that's probably the key is, is setting the expectation for them to have that work-life balance and then monitoring it as well. So that means engaging your team and talking to them to find out and to make sure that they are achieving that work-life balance, to see how late they're staying in the office and how early they are getting into the office. I would also add that it's setting the example yourself because they will watch you. They will see when you get in and when you leave and why you are leaving or why you are coming in so early. So it's it's being that example as well, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Yeah, I mean, gosh, setting the example pops into my mind immediately as well is the the bosses that I've had that have put stuff on their calendar and not just left to take care of family or personal stuff, but let everybody know, verbally told everybody why they were leaving. So not just setting the example, but make sure people know that work-life balance is important to you. And then helping people get flexible and creative. But it, it's really hard because there's a number of people, for example, that have to travel to the ship to meet deployment needs or test schedules. And so they don't have the luxury of making sure that they're home every day for, you know, to pick up from daycare. So trying to work with people to figure out creative solutions, trying to make space for people to be able to take care of their families, because, you know, not all of our jobs in the Navy and the DOD are nine to five office jobs, trying to help folks get creative and making sure we're flexible as supervisors in doing that as leaders. But um, definitely, I've really appreciated my leaders being verbal with me, asking me how I'm doing. I'm a pretty private person, so I need a little bit of prying. But when people ask me directly uh, why I'm still there, what I'm working on, and, and kind of maybe encourage me to leave and go home and encourage me to have that balance, I think that's really helped too. So I think that's something we can do as leaders is verbally encourage people and have those discussions, like both of you said about work-life balance and what they can specifically do to support that. that. That's right, Jess. And a lot of, I think a lot of the anxiety around life balance throughout our careers was the unknown. Yes. How would the boss react to that? And what we're seeing now is because we're talking about it and because the bosses are making their expectations known that a lot of that anxiety is removed. So I, I, I couldn't agree more that Talking about this and setting the tone, setting the example as leaders is uh, is critically important. It's good to hear, you know, um, on, on different ways that we can manage people down. But what's the flip side of that equation, right? It's it, how do we manage up, right? How do we manage the expectations of our bosses to to continue to help support this good work life balance, and and not just for us, but also to empower us to make sure that those who are working for us can have that good work life balance, and then kind of the natural follow-on to that is what do you do if your expectations don't necessarily align with those of your boss? And because that's a little bit of a harder question, Captain, I'm going to start off with you. Well, thanks, Matt. I think I could tell a story that illustrates this pretty well. One of the things uh, I do when I'm not being a PM is uh, help manage the, the Cannon Cocker Mentor Group. 
And so I have a fantastic team that helps with that. And so one of the things we learned by doing exit interviews is we found out from more than one J.O. that if they just had a relief valve on their career planner, if they could just take two years to go start a family or grow a family or care for an aging parent, that would have kept them in. All three of these J.O.s I talked to decided to get out. And they were fantastic engineering duty officers. And so what we learned is, man, a two-year pressure relief valve? That sounds a little bit like career intermission program, SIP. And so what we did was we said, let's, let's put that on our notional career planner. Let's get it right there, right? A broadening tour. You can go be a detailer. You can go to the Naval Academy. You can go be an instructor at ED school. You can do SIP. It's okay. Let's give that to the, uh, the officers and let them know that that's okay. And the feedback we've been getting from a lot of officers is that just knowing it's available has been enough for them. They're not planning even to take it. But knowing the community would support them in doing that was enough to get them to stay in, in for 05 and potentially want to be in 06. So that's an example of the learning that occurred just because we asked a simple question, like, what's on your mind? Why did you decide to, to get out? And so as far as managing expectations with my boss, clear and open communications and building that trust with your boss is a, is a different conversation. That would take us another podcast. But you have that trust with your boss. I told my boss as a PM working in IWS, I told Admiral Small and Admiral O'Connell uh, after Admiral Small that these are some of the things uh, at my outside of work obligations. They saw my four young children and, and, and they get it. And the, the bosses have been willing to work with me. And so what I've been trying to do in my role as a mentor group lead, as a PM, is do the same for the JOs and, and the civilians on the team. I think one easy way is just putting it on your calendar. You know, I'm going to work from home on this day and blocking that out. Or, you know, I need to go pick up the kids from daycare at this time and, and putting that on the calendar so it's and on your boss's calendar so it's known. Actually communicating, I guess that's a practical way of doing it. But like everybody said, it's the honest communication. And that's a lot easier said than done. I know I, I, I struggle through that. And, and I think it's about being, for some of us, just brave to jump into that conversation, depending on you know what kind of relationship you have with your boss. Um, that can be really hard. And I've been inspired. Last week, I was talking to a few of my friends, and they were talking about some of the conversations they've had with their boss about you know, their, their family planning and what they wanted for their career or their schedule. And I think that gave me a little bit of encouragement to do the same. So that's one way we can manage our boss's expectation is that honest communication. And then probably talking with your peers and letting them know what you're doing. And that'll encourage them to do the same. But that again, that's all easier said than done. Sometimes you're just not getting through and you, you kind of have to find an advocate, which is why mentoring can be so useful and having a, a network of people that you can trust, whether it's in the EDO community at large or in your mentor group, finding an advocate, someone you can have an honest conversation with maybe that can 
speak on your behalf or, or help you navigate those waters because it's really easy to say, put it on your calendar or talk to your boss. But when the rubber meets the road, that can be a challenging conversation. Jess, I like how uh, how you navigated that that last part there, uh, particularly finding an advocate. But uh, as for managing uh, the boss's expectations to support a, a good work-life balance, I tend to lean toward performance. I, I certainly believe that communication is a great, I mean, it's got to be open and honest communications. That may mean that there are some difficult conversations and communication, especially if you know that your uh, requirements don't align with your bosses. But I think that the open, the honest communication is going to build trust. And I think the other element, and I, I won't go into this too much because as Captain Hodges said, it's a long conversation about building trust. But I do think performance is a piece of that. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is strong performance. If you tell your boss what you are going to do for them, you set out and do what you've said you're going to do, and your boss feels supported, I don't think that most, particularly with the way the Navy has shifted lately, I don't think most bosses would have an an issue with you answering all bells and then uh, meeting your work-life balance priorities. So I do think good performance and strong performance is an element that we probably need to consider. As for uh, expectations that do not align with those of your boss, and I'm just coming up with this on the fly, but I also think that strong performance is a great advocate as well for your your boss to to shift their expectations and and perhaps uh, align with yours for work-life balance purposes. Um, I think finding an advocate uh, to bounce new ideas and, and ways to communicate more effectively with your boss to, to help them understand your priorities is, is a great idea as well. So last question, and I try and get this from, from everybody that comes on the podcast, but do you have any good book recommendations for us? And they can be on work-life balance, or it can be on any other topic that, that's really near and dear to your heart. So I, um, I jot down some books as far as the life balance conversation. So I'll go back to how I answered the first question in laying out your priorities. And so you're living a purpose-driven life. You lay out your priorities. Books that help you do that for me were The Last Lecture by Randy Pouch, Simon Sinek's TED Talk on Why, Destined for War by Graham Allison on what's going on with the Great Power Competition. And you've heard this before. I think Admiral O'Connor recommended this one, but Kill Chain by Christian Bros. When I laid out my why, my priorities, those are some of the books that came to mind. When I think about building great teams, because you had to be able to delegate as a part of maintaining balance that we discussed, Wooden on Leadership, Lincoln on Leadership by Phillips, Boys in the Boat by Daniel James Brown, for freeing up bandwidth and time and energy, Essentialism by Greg McNown, Getting Things Done by David Allen, and The One-Minute Manager Meets the Monkey by Ken Blanchard are ones that are on my shelf. And the last one, I think Attitude is Everything. There's two ways to look, two or three ways to look at it, right? You got the optimist, the pessimist, and the realist. I've, I've chosen the positive optimist way of looking at things. And the TED Talk that really inspired me on that was The Happiness Advantage by Sean Asher. And so it's 12 minutes, and uh, it fundamentally changed the way at which um, I look at the world. I'm going to have to start getting another shelf to add to uh, to my bookshelf here to start raking in all these great recommendations we've been having. Well, thank you all very much. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I appreciate everybody's willingness to participate. Thank you for having us on the show. Thank you for joining us in the wardroom. Special thanks to our sound engineer, Lieutenant Andrew Rowley. 
If you have questions you would like our guests to answer, comments, or suggestions, you can email us at thewardroompodcast at gmail.com or tweet or follow us on Twitter at wardroompodcast. If you like what you hear, please help us out by giving us a rating on your favorite podcast listening app. It helps others discover the podcast and allows us to keep bringing in great guests like the ones you heard today. Join us next time for a discussion with Captain Jay Young on leadership lessons from the EDO diver community. We look forward to meeting again in the wardroom.